the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am but one of your hosts for today, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm another one of your hosts. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I am the last host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State University. We are chugging along into part two of our red meat allergy content. Uh, in our last episode, you got to hear from Cindy, who talked about her experiences with red meat allergy. And we also met with Dr. Cosby Stone Jr., who talked about the medical side of things. Today, we have two very special guests that are going to talk about the molecule itself and some of the tick portion of this problem. Special guests, if you wouldn't mind, could you introduce yourselves to the arthropod listeners? Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, my name is Paulina Maldonado, and I am a postdoctoral research associate um, in Kansas State University in the Department of Entomology. And my main focus of research is tick, tick physiology, microbiome, and finding alternative strategies to mitigate any type of tick vector-borne diseases. Hi, my name is Yun Sung Park, uh, professor in the Department of Entomology at Kansas State University. Uh, my research program is uh, called Arthropod Molecular Physiology Laboratory. And we work on uh, many different topics, including uh, tick study, especially we started uh, alpha-gal allergy study from 2016. Yeah. Welcome aboard. We're very happy to have you on the show today. Uh, you sound exactly like the kind of people that we needed to have for this. I'm very happy to have other Wildcats on the show. Uh, Kentucky and Kansas State share St. mascot. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Park, you were just in Kentucky not too long ago. Am I remembering correctly? Yes, uh, I visited your campus and just I offered a seminar in the Department of Entomology. And that kind of led us here to today. So I'm very happy to have you on the show. We're happy to go through and kind of talk about stuff with you. I kind of wanted to start at the beginning, though. Uh, since we're talking about alpha-gal, we're talking about red meat allergy. Can you explain to our listeners what exactly is galactose alpha 13 galactose uh what is this molecule uh if you could give a broad overview of that uh sure so as you mentioned it uh correctly galactose alpha 13 galactose um but commonly known as alpha gal so it's a carbohydrate um this is mainly found in proteins or lipids uh in uh, non-primate mammals uh, we know that it is synthesized by alpha-1,3-galactosyl transferase enzyme. Um, so the situation that happens here is that we know that um, while the old world monkey and humans, we don't have, uh, we I mean, we do have the gene um, alpha-1,3-galactosyl um, transferase. Um, it has been inactivated during the course of evolution. So because of this reason is that um, almost all immunocompetent individuals actually produce antibodies um, against alpha-gal. Interesting, interesting. So it's found in all other warm-blooded animals, mammals that are crawling around? It, it is, and it's usually found in, in, in the surface of, of the cells. So that's why it is recognized as an epitope, uh, which would be recognized as um, um, antibodies. So it's either conjugated to proteins, um, which would be glycolipids, or um, glycoproteins, excuse me, or um, lipids, which it would be a glycolipid. Okay, so it does serve a function, like it's there for a reason. Um, yes, so um, one of the main reasons is the ability to be recognized um, by the immune system. Yeah, so we we are able to recognize any any molecule containing alpha-gal as a foreign uh, molecule. And uh, as we know, a lot of um, pathogens or microorganisms actually have this epitope or this molecule in their surface. Um, and uh, it, they're commonly known as uh, pathogen-associated molecular patterns. And um, what happens uh, during the course of evolution is that pathogens actually have adopted this molecular mimicry to kind of um, go unnoticed by the immune system. But because of that reason, we eventually actually recognize them as uh, a potential threat. And 
we respond to to this um, in a way to defend ourselves from this uh, foreign or uh, molecules or pathogens. Right. So what is its relation to red meat allergy? Are these interchangeable terms when we say alpha-gal versus red meat allergy? Uh, what is its role in the red meat allergy? So in terms of the terminology, I think that uh, early on it was called red meat allergy, but now we know that it's uh, uh, commonly known. We, we use the terms, I guess, interchangeably now that we know that it is associated to um, the alpha-gal. Um, I don't know if, Yung Song, you want to add something specific to that? Yeah, probably uh, just the uh, yeah, original name was red meat allergy. And then just uh, uh, 2004, uh, Dr. Cummins in uh, University of North Carolina has identified some additional molecular mechanism of red meat allergy. And a more official name became uh, uh, alpha syndrome right now. Uh, but yet some more evidences and link are coming. So just uh, that's uh, all the current studies uh, enforcing those uh, justification of the name as well. Yeah. You just mentioned some what I, I I think is very interesting history. Like how long have we been studying this? How long have we been dealing with alpha-gal as an issue? So the I believe the official report in terms of tick association happened in the early 1990s. Um, and this was in Australia when there was the first suggestion that that ticks might be linked to um, causing this um, allergic response. Um, however, I believe it was not until um, around 2004 uh, where this came to be more in the uh, oncology world or cancer uh, research. Uh, with the drug drug called uh, cetuximab, and um, this uh, drug, it is a murine-derived monoclonal anti-cancer antibody uh, that contains alpha-gal from where it is synthesized. And so, what was happening is that individuals were actually reacting to this um, molecule, and um, it started to uh, be able to, it, we started to notice that other individuals like in xenotransplantation or cardiac valves transplantation, uh, xenotransplantation, meaning um, um, animal-derived um, uh, produced organs that were being transplanted to humans, they were actually having this reaction as well. Um, later on, between early 2000s, I think is it was when they started to see this um, association with ticks because of the distribution of those cases. So it was around um, uh, Southern United States that we started to see these cases pop up. And then we started seeing that um, uh, based on the CDC reports of the Lone Star tick distribution, there was quite a significant overlap of this, as well as Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is very commonly um, known disease transmitted by tick bites. So I think that because of this association, it's when this started to be uh, more looked into as ticks as a possibility of being the initial sensitizer or carriers of um, alpha-gal syndrome. Um, I have a question about the ticks. So ticks are vectors, but this isn't considered a, a pathogen, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we describe the process of in infection yeah, probably we can talk more about our research in terms of potential like a transmission. Uh, but just actually, we our research group has tested the transmission hypothesis. So okay. probably Paulina can talk about that more. But for defining the terminology here, uh, the first uh, the allergen or allergy sensitizer is not yet categorized as an infection uh, okay. so in clinical research. Uh, and then, unfortunately, we do not have a full knowledge on AGS yet. So just uh, still reluctant that uh, this alcohol containing tick bite is infection. So, so I would use uh, the term of risk factor in this case. So just uh, instead of calling it infection itself, <laughs> yeah. Risk factor. And do the ticks, how did they, how do, is it 
I guess, was it entomologists come to know that it was the Lone Star Tick specifically? Uh, as uh, uh, Dr. Paulina Maldonado briefly a- explained, the distribution pattern of this AGS, uh, uh, AGS uh, is alpha syndrome, uh, is exactly very well matching with uh, the, the distribution pattern of uh, this uh, embryoma tick, so just long static. So that is the first reason. And also, uh, it's not statistically uh, really uh, established, but yet many patients is uh, saying just that they have been having recent tick bite by embryoma with lone static. And especially lone static is relatively easy to distinguish, actually, compared to other tick because of the size, large size, as well as the top on the back there. So, uh, and afterward, we have tested some of the different ticks uh, for uh, the presence or absence of alpha-gal epitope in their cerebral gland. And uh, we find Amblyoma americanum is the number one, but still, we cannot completely exclude the possibility of some other tick uh, having role in this uh, syndrome as well. Yeah. Is it in all the stages of the tick? So even the seed ticks? I think that's, uh, uh, at the moment, we can't really say because we haven't really tested um, that. Uh, so we have not tested um, any immature stages um, other than the adult. Uh, but as we will discuss based on the research that we have done, um, we cannot exclude the possibility of uh, immature stages actually contributing to to this um, alpha-gal syndrome. Uh, but definitely it's a question that we would like to, to address later on and see if we can test um, immature um, stages. So something you said really leads into a question that I had, that you mentioned that when you look for um, the alpha-gal in ticks, Amblyoma americanum is the, is the number one tick that has like the most. But you mentioned other ticks might have lower levels. So in alpha-gal, allergy does pop up in other parts of the world. Um, so I guess, can you talk about like what is going on in these other ticks? Like, do I have to worry about say black-legged ticks here in Pennsylvania where like, <laughs> like we already have Lyme disease. Yes. Um, so I guess, can you talk about like what we know about what's going on in other ticks, both here in North America, do we have to worry about things other than Lone Stars and then kind of more broadly around the world? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, yes, there are uh, worldwide reports of um, alpha-gal syndrome uh, associated to other tick species. So briefly, um, um, I can mention Ixodes ricinus uh, in Europe has been linked to um, alpha-gal syndrome. Um, a different species of Ixodus, um, uh, Polocyclus, um, in Australia. Um, and then we have the Asian longhorn tick, Chemaphysalis longicornis, in Asia. And here in North America, we have uh, Amblyoma americanum and other Amblyoma species as well in, in South America. So what's, um, uh, to try to answer your question on, on the deer tick, which is Ixodes scapularis, which is um, another species from those same uh, genus that we've seen in, in Europe. Um, there's some reports showing the presence of alpha-gal um, in the salivary glands of the deer tick after it has been fed on, a, on bovine blood, or to put it in other words, on blood that contains alpha-gal. Um, however, I don't think that has been um, extensively looked at. Um, I would say that, um, or we can speculate that they might have that potential, um, but I don't believe there are any um, reports that have shown that they actually do. We, um, one of our <laughs> future um, directions that current studies that we're trying to do is trying to assess um, what those levels are in um, the deer tick that, um, that we have here. Um, in the United States and evaluate their potential for being this risk factor as uh, 
um, Dr. Uh, Park put it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for that yet. Um, but I would say that the best way to put it is that they can be um, potential um, uh, transmitters or sensitizers. That gets it. I guess something else that I've I, I wanted to ask, and now seems like a good time. Um, you know, we've learned I've learned a lot talking to you, and then during our last interview about AlphaGal. Um, but one of the things that I'd heard when it, this idea of alpha-gal allergy or a red meat allergy came up three, four, five years ago, and we didn't quite know like what where the sensitizer was coming from, was the idea that like the tick would bite something, an animal that has alpha-gal in it, and then bite a person and maybe transfer some of that blood. And that's what sensitizes the person or the alpha-gal somehow gets in the saliva from that animal that was bitten. It sounds like maybe that's the case with this bovine feeding with Exodes scapularis. So I guess, can you, can you talk about that idea? Like, is that correct? Like, are they getting alpha-gal in them from other animals that they're then passing on to people or like with uh, Amblyomma americanum, like, are they just producing alpha-gal normally as part of like what they make in their saliva? And it doesn't, they don't need to feed on something else. Like, do we know where this is coming from? Is it different tick to tick? Yeah. So <laughs> all of the above, I think that we don't. Um, so the, the idea, I think we can go a little bit more in, into the work that we have done. Um, Cause one of the questions we wanted to address is actually um, what you just uh, said. If it was some, something like they have picked it up from in um non-human uh, host, and then they just transmit it um, as they picked it up. So we wanted to test um, this hypothesis, which we had called the um, intrastadial host uh, switch. Um, and uh, just to prematurely conclude, we were <laughs> um, not we didn't find evidence to support this hypothesis, but there has been other hypotheses around and, and also that we are currently exploring. Uh, one was that one, the, the, the transfer um, intrastadial host switch. The other one was that um, they are actually capable of producing um, the alpha-gal. And then another hypothesis is that maybe um, there is some other factors um, uh, not and I don't want to uh, go into too much depth on this, but potentially bacteria that might be contributing to this because we know that it's present in um, different bacteria and we know that um, ticks carry bacteria. Um, but um, to just kind of focus your, um, your question in terms of the transmission, so we thought in our previous, um, uh, when we had our hypothesis, uh, intrastadial host switch because we actually found very high levels of alpha-gal in ticks that have been previously fed on bovine blood. So we measured unfed tick levels, and those were uh, very low or negligible levels of an unfed adult tick. Um, and after we fed them with bovine blood, those levels were significantly higher. Uh, so what we did is we used a, um, a knockout mouse model system. So we would call it just a humanized uh, mouse um, in the alpha-gal. So uh, it has the alpha um, galactosyltransferase gene knockout. Um, so they're not capable of producing this alpha-gal. So theoretically, um, they should respond as humans do in terms of alpha-gal. So we use this mice uh, mouse model to test our hypothesis. And we fed previously ticks on bovine blood. And then immediately after within the same stage, which is the definition of intrastadial host switch, in the same stage, we transferred them into the mice. And then in the mice, we fed, we measured after um, several days of feeding, we measured IgE levels, um, immunoglobulin uh, E, which is known to be increased in alpha-gal uh, syndrome, uh, only specifically against alpha-gal. And we also measured IgG. Uh, and unfortunately, our results were not able to give us um, this answer, or would not provide a clear answer as if it was transmission. Um, the other thing is that 
um, we were seeing a lot of individual variation uh, within the tick. So that going to your question about um, if it's varying across um, ticks, we do see individual variation across ticks from the same uh, cohort. What we are currently testing now is um, a different hypothesis uh, that ticks are able to synthesize the alpha-gal. And what we are currently doing now is we are feeding ticks in an artificial feeding system that we have in the setup in our lab. And we are feeding them bovine blood, uh, which is containing alpha-gal. And we are feeding them also human blood from different donors, which should be lacking um, alpha-gal. And what we see is that the ticks that, been, that have been fed on human blood actually have about 10 times higher alpha-gal levels than the bovine blood fed ticks. So uh, all in all, in our experiments, what it seems that our data is suggesting is that ticks are able to synthesize somehow this alpha-gal during the course of feeding. Now, how this is happening, we don't know yet. Um, and uh, in terms of what another observation that we have is uh, it increases during the course of feeding. So we usually call a partially fed tick that is usually fed uh, between uh, four to five days uh, fed um, usually would have this high levels, but we see this increasing as early as day three, day four, um, day five continuously increasing levels. Um, now, what that means in terms of direct uh, clinical um, significance into alpha-gal syndrome, we, we, we don't know, uh, but we do believe that um, this is uh, a very interesting finding that um, we are currently working on publishing. <laughs> so this is Fresh, new information. Uh, Fresh but... squeeze science, right here on Arthur <laughs> Pod. Uh, we won't we won't pry too hard. We don't want you to spoil anything or get scooped <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, the other thing that stuck out to me from your paper was there was some implication about male lone stars perhaps having some behavioral aspects to them that that might predispose them to be a bigger issue in this alpha gal problem. Can you speak to that and what what may be going on there? Yes. So one of the things that we hypothesized for this was, um, as you put it, we we talked about in that work, uh, the male contribution. So our thought, um, our initial thought to approach this question was due to the fact that we believed at that time that it was intrastadial. So females um, tend to feed in one event, so that once they attach, they typically are um, attached until engorgement. And it is during feeding uh, that males come and then they mate, and then they just continue uh, to be attached. So because males have a different kind of feeding behavior where they can uh, attach and detach multiple times in the same host, we originally thought that this was um, uh, providing more possibility because males would be able to switch to another host easier than what the the females would. Um, however, this doesn't this doesn't seem to be the case uh, based in our study. We in our study with with the mice, we actually did um, test uh, uh, pairs of fed unfed female with bovine blood and all the combinations possible. So both let's say both male and female that were previously fed on a bovine blood meal and then put it on the mice, then unfed male and female and so on. And there was no um, evidence suggesting that the males were actually contributing more um, uh, in that intrastadial hole switch and also in that previous transfer um, of alpha-gal from bovine to to human, or oh, mice in this case. Right, right. That seems like a very important finding. It seems like it helps to clear up some of the mystery here, or at least it, it cuts down on the mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I and uh, I think I just, uh, the, that McDonald's recent uh, discovery is uh, important in terms of, okay, so unfed tick, unfed tick, has almost a little little level of alpha-gal, which means just uh, they are not really transmitting 
So previously installed feeding was not really affecting uh, the alcohol content in the adult stage. And secondly, depends on the host and uh, host blood. Just uh, we haven't really had an examination of a tick pad on human itself, but just uh, uh, we have tested the blood pad on human blood. And that shows a much higher alcohol level than bovine fat, but with large variation. Depends on tick, depends on, uh, in other words, depends on geographical origin, depends on uh, tick stage and also individual differences, uh, so which is not yet explainable yet. So, yeah. One thing that kind of happened to me when I read through your paper and prepared for today is we are all educators. So Mike and Jody and I, we we travel, we talk about ticks, we do all kinds of stuff with education and extension. I travel all over Kentucky talking to people about red meat allergy. And it, this kind of like shook my foundations a little bit. It seems, it, this might be controversial to say, like, are you, is there a question of like, if the Lone Star Tick is involved, are we accurate when we educate people in that way? Or are we being too bold in our assumption? I think currently just the, the extension education, especially for awareness of this symptom and uh, what to be uh, uh, prevented is uh, perfectly okay. Uh, but just uh, in terms of going into more science part, just uh, uh, we still do not know exactly uh, whether the alcohol in the tick salivary gland is only the sensitizer. So some other mechanism, some other component might be also involved in there. But still, the major message we need to uh, spread out is the warning about just uh, the tick bite. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I would add that. Um... Yes, I think there is strong enough evidence to suggest that tick bites are the initial sensitizers. I think that at this point, we just don't know how it is that they're causing this um, sensitization. Or in our case, on our, in our research, we don't know how is it that ticks are capable of producing alpha-gal. If an unfed tick doesn't have alpha-gal, and we know that ticks lack also, the alpha galactosyltransferase gene to synthesize it, but we see it there. I think that's um, uh, the million-dollar question: where, 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 how is it? How is how are they synthesizing it? How are they increasingly producing it? But I would say one interesting message um, that. Uh, we are currently pointing out on our, on our most recent work is the fact that the ticks that have been feeding on human blood over time tends to increase. So um, overall, we don't know what the implication of prolonged feeding, let's say two day, three day. Um, but I would say that the, um, uh, the message for the population should be the same. Watch out for ticks and early tick removal. Um, we don't know if early tick removal is actually contributing in any way um, because we still don't haven't tested tested this hypothesis. But right. uh, that would still, I believe, be the main message: um, search for ticks and remove them as soon as you 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 can. Prevent the bite. Yeah, uh, yeah. maybe you prevent the alpha gal. So what we learned from uh, Dr. Stone was that there's a lot of variation in symptoms and uh, the antibodies that are found in humans when they do have the alpha-gal syndrome. And from what I'm hearing from you, and you could you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a lot of variation in the ticks as well. So could that be that sometimes possibly a tick that doesn't have as much alpha-gal it bites somebody that they may not have as severe symptoms. Do you think that may have anything to do with that? Yeah, I totally agree with you. Just uh, so uh, previous podcast might have been talking about uh, the human side of variation. So yeah. the response to the same levels of alpha might be differently occurring. But we are mainly focusing on the study of 
the variation in the tick. So just uh, uh, our recent study included uh, the different population comparison. Uh, so we tested uh, uh, six, seven different uh, populations to see whether uh, they all respond to same to the human blood feeding. Uh, we find some levels of differences among different population. And the major the, uh, shocking and uh, something that we cannot explain is even within the same population, they have quite a large differences among individuals. So uh, that is the part we are trying to approach by using some modern biological technique like uh, next generation sequencing type of thing. So we would like to understand what makes individual ticks different. And uh, we are trying to uh, supplement the evidence showing, okay, different levels of alpha-gal in individual tick might be also connected, directly connected to the uh, functioning as a sensitizer at different level. So that is uh, something uh, our next uh, uh, research uh, currently ongoing. Uh, and also, just we are not excluding possibility of some other supplementary factor, risk factor that function as a uh, sensitizer. All in the saliva of the tick, is that correct? So is that why they don't? We don't know if it needs to have a certain amount of time to be attached, or is it as soon as it bites? So our data indicate that just uh, we tested the unfed and very early stage of fat and later stage of that, partially that. And just we found that just one day, it is increased, alpha-gal is increased, but it is further increased in like a third day uh, or fourth day of feeding. So if you are removing uh, the kid as soon as possible, that's uh, actually the best way to prevent the alpha-gal uh, syndrome happening there. Yeah, that's definitely what we teach. I think when it comes to other, you know, like vector-borne disease, when it comes to ticks, it's usually that 24, 36 hour. But then when it comes to alpha-gal, you know, we're like, just, you need to prevent bites altogether. And yeah. it seems like no matter how long we've been educating about tick safety this red meat allergy is really getting people wanting to be more tick aware and safe. Whereas the other, like, what about all the other diseases? Like, why wasn't that important to them? You know, but they really, really want to eat their hamburger. Was, it comes skin. down to hamburgers, yeah. Jenny. It comes down to hamburgers. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to give the burger stuff. So I, yeah. I get that. Jody's in the beef state. I think people there eat uh, 20 out of 21 meals in a week have red meat in them. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I believe Nebraska is really high on on beef. But yeah, I think that that's a that's one of the very early messages that we are um, sending in our most recent publication is the early uh, increase in alpha gal uh, feeding. But we know that the unfed tick actually has negligible levels of alpha gal, so. I think that we can hypothesize that this is actually happening as time progresses, uh, but an official finding that can say, oh, yes, it is because it's been fitting there for longer than 24 hours or whatever time it is. I, I don't think we have an actual evidence of that, um, but our data does definitely suggest um, that this might play a, a role. Um, and that it's worth looking into. So you've mentioned kind of here and there, like kind of some things that you'd like to look at next. Um, but just kind of here as we're, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but as we're starting to come to the end of, of the interview, do you, are there, like, what are your next directions to get it all in one place? Like, do you have specific things you want to look at? Um, where do you think the research into AlphaGal uh, overall is going even outside of your lab um do you think we're going to be able to 
like really pin down what exactly is going on in the next couple of years, or do you think it'll like remain elusive? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, I briefly mentioned what we are doing uh, and what is our goal, but just uh, uh, a little bit more elaborating uh, what we are doing. Just uh, uh, yeah, like what I said, just uh, the levels of AlphaGal in different individual loan study is one question we are asking, what makes it difference? And what kind of genetic component is involved in this uh, uh, system? That is the one question what we are uh, asking currently. And secondly, expanding that question further, just uh, we still do not know the, whether other system is involved in sensitization step. So sensitization step is not necessarily only alpha-gal. So if you are injecting a mouse with alpha-gal, they do not have actually alpha-gal allergy. So there is some other component in the tick saliva that makes them to be sensitized. So that factor can be something other types of xenoglycan, so xenoglycan means a foreign to human uh, uh, glycan, or some other tick salivary component. Uh, and also, like uh, what uh, Dr. Maldonado said, some possibility of some bacteria involved in there. So those are something that we are looking for at this moment by uh, designing some experiments for analytical uh, uh, analysis of the component, each component there, yeah. And uh, yeah, one more thing is actually, uh, this type of study uh, can be done in entomology lab, but at the same time, uh, some of the collaboration with the clinical lab is uh, uh, essential uh, in order to connect uh, our knowledge to clinical uh, study. So, uh, we do uh, some collaboration with a clinical laboratory, uh, Dr. Commons in uh, University of North Carolina, uh, for uh, this study as well. Yeah. Yeah, and and also you mentioned the um, trying to find that uh, potential genetic factor in the ticks that is contributing contributing to the variation. We are exploring all this um, tick uh, population, so. Still lone star ticks, but from different geographical locations that are typically associated with high incidence of um, alpha-gal uh, levels. And we are currently uh, exploring that, but we would want to uh, continue that survey to different locations that we haven't been able to, to reach and just kind of see if something um, shows up in these specific populations that might help try to pinpoint uh, what is that genetic factor that is contributing to the ticks being able to synthesize alpha-gal overall? And other tick species, I think, as we talked earlier on, um, currently we are uh, haven't had any results yet, but we're uh, starting to feed the deer tick, Ixodes capillaris, um, uh, in bovine blood as well as in human blood, and just to see if those um, levels uh, are similar to the levels that we see in um, the Lone Star Tick, which have actually not really been explored. Um, and uh, no, I think that yeah. <laughs> that's all. One more interesting thing that, that we found recently is uh, uh, actually when uh, Dr. Polina Madonado tested all different host system, what we uh, observed is uh, when the uh, lone star tick is fed on dog, they produce a uh, higher alpha level than other blood. So just like a bovine uh, or a rabbit, they usually have a really small amount of uh, alpha But when they are fed on dog, the alpha level start to be going up. And also in human, it really jumps up very high, like up to the 10 times higher than average of uh, bovine blood fed ticks. So just to, I was, I looked for some uh, literature for dog possibility of red meat allergy in dog, 
And indeed, there are many cases of uh, just a dog having suffering from uh, those dietary meat. Uh, I don't know whether that is alpha-gal syndrome or not, but it is uh, worth to be tested, I think. Yeah. That's tragic. That's <laughs> <laughs> Uh, luckily, dogs and people are famously never together, so it doesn't seem like there will be any association there. <laughs> uh, kind of piggybacking off of Mike's question is, uh, with this research going into the tick spit and the, and the transmission and everything, is there a prospect for protection in the future, aside from what we preach, which is tick prevention, tick bite prevention? Is Will there be a way that we can mess with their saliva or anything that we can do to to alter the ticks themselves? I, I don't want to say GMO ticks because I know how people feel about the modified mosquitoes, but we're talking about saving hamburgers here. So are there any prospects like that you think for the future or, <laughs> or, or what does that look like? That's a question. Very difficult to answer. Actually. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> thing what we do is just, uh, yeah, entomologists work hard for our kind of surveillance of uh, ticks and also our, uh, Preventing tick bite as well, uh, but yeah, just we do not have a, a magic bullet there. Uh, so, more clinical side of the work has been uh, making a little bit progresses in general against allergy. Actually, people has been developing some immunotherapy for uh, suppressing IgE, immunoglobulin E, and also the allergen itself. It can be suppressed by that way. So uh, as far as I know, that's not really like a clinical use used for uh, uh, patient care, but a very promising strategy uh, that is. Yeah, in the case of uh, alpha syndrome studying scientists as an entomologist, what we are doing is uh, more of uh, uh, accurate surveillance might be possible. So when we know what kind of genetic component is really controlling this alpha elevation in tick, probably we can predict those uh, 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 alpha uh, tick uh, prevalence, uh, as well as uh, some prevention is uh, uh, directly connected to the surveillance tick. I was going to say, is there like a a registry or somewhere for each state or region to report this. I had reached out to our department of the human health and in their tick reports that I receive every month, they'll talk about, you know, how many people went to the emergency room for a tick bite, how many tick borne diseases were recorded during that time. And I had, I had reached out and said, does this include alpha gal? And he said, like, there's not a way that anyone's been collecting that information for our state. And so how do we know what the prevalence is, is for what you want to study with those ticks? So like, how can you find out where there's a lot of alpha gal syndrome so you can find the Lone Star ticks to collect? That's a great question, Jody. Uh, I also have thought of that just quite a lot. And just so only the way we were able to do was uh, like uh, asking our colleagues for tick collection, a live tick, and they ship uh, to my lab just a live tick and we feed them on human blood on small uh, artificial membrane feeding chamber, which is a very laborious one. And then just uh, those uh, partially pad tick on human blood is dissected and tested for their alpha level. So that has been uh, done and that is uh, the way how we did for surveillance of alpha level in tick because just uh, they have different level of alpha depends on what they pad on. Uh, that's why just uh, the understanding genetic component uh, associated with uh, this high alpha gal is uh, uh, possibly leading us to next level of surveillance. So uh, on the top of the pathogen surveillance, we may be able to detect the genotype of the tick that is associated with high levels of alpha gal as well. So that's uh, something our next goal of the study. 
Um, how many ticks do you have to use to get, like, is it one tick? So many tits, like that, that, that's also a good question, and just uh, that's something we need to assess because that is depends on the frequency, uh, so detection sensitivity. So right now, just what we in our lab, just what we do is about ten tick at least from one side we test them, and then just uh, usually we have at least a couple of individuals having extremely high alpha level. So we have uh, the cut line, uh, the threshold line we set, which is uh, the threshold line for 95% of uh, tick uh, alpha level in bovine blood fat, which is uh, we have like uh, about 400 picomol uh, in our laboratory term. So that is the threshold. And if we have any individual higher than that, then is uh, we call high alpha level, and uh, that is uh, giving us a statistical power for uh, like chi-square test. And if we have at least two individuals having, among 10 individuals having high alpha level, that's the population different from what we would normally see. So that's the uh, current statistics uh, with a limited resource, but just if we can, improve our technology for genotyping, then just that is going to be allowing us to go into many, many ticks surveillance thing. Okay, this is off topic, but I'm just so interested in both of you and what you do in this tick and this whole entire thing. When you got into entomology, did you think you were going to be studying this? Did you dream of ticks as a child? <laughs> okay, so let's be honest for this part. And <laughs> the, the reason why I went into uh, uh, the tick uh, alpha allergy was uh, actually I started the tick study, tick physiology from 2007 or 2008. And just I have been involved in more, my research topic has been a tick salivary gland, how this tick salivary gland is uh, controlled by uh, neural and endocrine factors. So that was uh, the part of physiology I have been working on. 2016, I started to study this uh, alcohol allergy because it's uh, just uh, simply, I have been working on uh, tick salivary gland and just I've heard of some people complaining about red meat allergy uh, uh, they have. So just uh, I jumped on to, okay, why don't we use uh, this uh, uh, mouse model system? And at the time, just nobody has been working on it. So, and I was uh, looking around, looking for and asking around, anybody is doing just mouse model system for tick bite. Uh, for red mythology. And I was uh, unable to find anybody doing that. So just uh, I decided to, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, that uh, was uh, the first time, first initial point, and just it moved on to uh, now. Uh, yeah, for me, it was, I, I didn't ever think I was going to be doing this type of work. So um, Dr. Park has his physiology um, career, I guess, arthropod physiology very well outlined, but I started um, as a microbiologist. So my interest was in a way to prevent um, arthropod-borne diseases. Um, and uh, eventually when I learned that he was um, starting to um, do alpha-gal research, I was really interested in the, as we mentioned before, the bacterial component, because um, this has, hypothesis was um, hanging around there uh, about what bacteria might contribute to this alpha-gal syndrome. I mean, the bacteria that it, we know that it's currently uh, living in um, in the ticks. Uh, and this is, uh, you're probably already aware of this uh, endosymbian communities that exist in all arthropods and, and primarily um, in, in, in ticks. Um, so I was really interested in this in this hypothesis. So one of the um, directions uh, that we are pursuing is uh, trying to see this bacterial um, contribution. And on my side, I was not working with ticks before, but 
uh, now this is really, uh, really interesting topic that I definitely would like to continue um, my work even outside of, of uh, Yungsung Park's lab. Um, still, there's too many uh, unanswered questions um, that it's really, really interesting topic. So. Yeah, so Dr. Maldonado is going to be moving to University of Arizona as a, a veterinary and medical entomologist, and uh, we will still collaborate for the same topic uh, continuously. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. That's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I think I think everyone would agree, and with the all the different people we've talked to, including each other, about this syndrome and the tick is that it's just weird and doesn't follow any rules. Yeah. So. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dr. Stone, I think called it a sci-fi disease. It seems like it's made up uh, something that, that's only from a script, perhaps from Hollywood. We really appreciate your time and your explanations today, your expertise on this topic. I know it's complicated. I know that it, it's, it, it can be dense, but I really appreciate you unpackaging it and helping the arthropod listeners kind of understand what's going on with AlphaGal a little bit more. So we appreciate that. Is there anywhere that people can find either of you on the internet, if you'd like to share a, a website, a Twitter or X or whatever it's called now, uh, that people could communicate with you or, or see your work? Uh, in my case, um, I have my website, which is www.paulinamaldonadoruiz.com. And all the other links are um, there on that uh, website. So I will include that in the show notes. Yeah, same name, just uh, my name, Sochi is going to be leading me because uh, my un American name <laughs> is uh, very rare. To, <laughs> so just you can easily find uh, my name. Without Perfect. <laughs> We, we will advertise it as such. Thanks again for your time. Uh, I just wanted to say that if people listen, if you can find us on any of your favorite podcatcher apps, Spotify, Podcast Addict, anything like that, Apple Podcasts, if you can leave us a rating and review, it helps other people find the show. You can always find us as arthro-pod on any platform. Uh, we're also online, arthro-pod.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter, uh, arthro underscore pod show, and we're each individually on Twitter. I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugs Me UNL. And I'm at mscabarla 36 Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our Red Meat Allergy series. Uh, tune back in in a couple more weeks for more entomological goodness here on Arthropod. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel. As the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.